Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the final third. This is our Thursday deep dive episode. My name is AJ Tabura, and I'm joined by Jack. Jack, how are you feeling? Feeling pretty good. How about you, AJ? I know you had a bit of a rough day today. Okay, we don't have to bring that up. We, you know, Jack's right. We are recording this on Tuesday, the 9th, uh, just two hours after my beloved West Ham United fell to the cheaters. Cheaters, Manchester United. I don't know how they cheated, but you know, let's just let, let's just say they did. They brought on uh, Bruno. That that's how. Yeah, Bruno's a cheater. Actually, no, he's he's like my favorite player on Manchester United. Uh, we're gonna get into that game later on next week, but for now, we're talking about two very very big topics. Getting into the the nitty gritty with the two of them you know uh just to go over what we do here because here in the final third we try to not just give the shallow analysis for some stories and you know our new our news uh episode you know we give a pretty uh a shallow look into a lot of different stories but for the deep dives we like to go really in depth into the stories that people really want to hear about within the soccer world so we have two of them today. We have one US, US-centric one and one that's more global. Uh, the first one, we're going to be talking about the MLS-CBA, Collective Bargaining Agreement. And then next, we're going to talk about the red cards in the Premier League and why there's so many this year and why are referees just getting it so wrong. So, uh, Jack, do you have anything else to say on that? No, but as always, make sure oh, to yes. check out our Twitter. You know? Yes, yes, yes. At Final Third Show, we've been posting a little bit uh, more about red cards and other stuff for our topics, just to get some more opinions on the matter, so make sure to interact on there if you want to get involved. All right, well, let's get right into it with the U.S.-centric topic, MLS Collective Bargaining Agreement. And to begin, I'm going to tell a little story. I might have to you know, explain a lot, but... Bear with me because this is all very valuable information. And a lot of this, I have to give credit to Sam Stasekal and Paul Tenorio of The Athletic. A lot of this does come from their reporting throughout the last month. So yeah, here we go. So one year ago, February 6, 2020, Major League Soccer and the Major League Soccer Players Association signed a new collective bargaining agreement. And it ushered in a new era of excitement and goodwill between players and the league. And then, you know, this little thing called coronavirus happened, Jack. I don't know if you've uh, heard of this. Yeah, I might have. I might have a little bit. Yeah, you might have. But almost a year to the day, a new CBA has just been signed. The third in 12 months. Because earlier this week, the MLS Players Association, comprised of all the players, got together and voted to approve MLS's collective bargaining agreement offer. And before this happened, a lockout, a labor lockout, almost happened. So, you know, what did happen before we get into what actually is in the CBA and we begin discussing? Well, when MLS and the MLS Players Association agreed to come back last season with the MLS's back tournament, they signed a new CBA in June. And they included something called a force majeure clause, which stipulated that in the case of major financial pitfalls due to the coronavirus, they'd be able to force a renegotiation of the CBA. Earlier this year, they activated it citing major financial losses of upwards of $1 billion, despite the fact that many of the owners actually had their net worth rise and they'd probably be able to cover the costs of labor 
And despite the fact that 2021 was almost guaranteed to not be as financially dubious as 2020. And they proposed extending the existing CBA by two years. So until 2027, that was uh, the renegotiation that they they forced upon the Players Association to extend it by two years. So why 2027? That's after the 2026 World Cup in the USA. Jack, I, I don't know if you knew this is like the root cause of all of this, but like the 2026 World Cup is obviously a very, very big, momentous occasion coming to the USA. A ton right. of people will be watching the World Cup and all that buzz will fall onto our domestic league, MLS. The league will see increases in soccer tenances, TV ratings, and merchandise sales. Now, Jack, did you know when the current existing CBA would have expired? Yeah, I believe it was in 2024 or 2025, just to give some time for renegotiation before the World Cup. Yes, exactly. You're you're on the nose there. 2025, a year before the World Cup. The reason why this is such a big deal is because if they renegotiated before the World Cup, the players would be able to push more out of the owners and say that, hey, I mean, the World Cup's coming up. We're going to get a lot of money out of it. We should get our fair share. But by having it run after the World Cup and into 2027, this new CBA allows the owners to bank on the hype of the World Cup dying down within that time. So when they renegotiate, the players can't use the World Cup, the upcoming World Cup, as leverage against them. Essentially, the owners would be able to pocket the profits of the league makes from the World Cup. And so the MLS Players Association countered last month with an offer to extend the CBA by just one year into 2026. And when they did that, MLS basically said, yeah, let's uh, let's extend the deadline for negotiation by one week. And if we can't come up with anything, we're going to lock you guys out because we we really, really want this now jack do you know what's in the cba the what players got out of the owners with this new renegotiation yeah so the mls players are going to get stagnant wages or increases from each year going forward throughout the cba which was a big win and something that the mlspa really wanted Uh, and for those of you who don't know mlspa is the mls players association which is their union And we also saw that there would be a change to the free agency rules. So instead of being 24 and needing five years of experience to be a free agent, you need to be 24 and only have four years of experience in MLS, which makes a lot more people or a lot more players rather eligible for free agency. And then Mm -hmm. we also see uh, a change in force majeure that it can it can't be invoked throughout the rest of this year although at the very end in December 2021 if the league feels like they've lost enough money they can invoke it again and force through another round of renegotiation within 2 years yes. which is a bit of a contentious point and i think it's honestly a bit of a mistake by the NLSPA to let that stay in because it it's led to a lot of uncertainty for players but uh, I can give more opinions on that at a little bit later in this. Yeah, well, well, why don't you? Because you know, we just went over the CBA. We just went over the the history, the reason why we're doing this. 
the reason why the league is doing this is because of the the World Cup and all the money that they could gain by you know screwing the players over just a little bit. And let's be honest, it right. is it is objectively screwing over the players. That that's why they did this. We know what's inside the CBA. Like I just said, players don't get any salary cuts for 2021. That's pretty big. Free agency has improved. Uh, the salary cap will will stagnate a little bit, but increase a, a fair a bit. I have 7.5% between 25 and 26 and 10% between 2026 and 2027. So, you know, but the question is, Jack, for you, who won this labor dispute? MLS owners or the Players Association? It's really clear to me. It's the MLS owners. They they clearly won this. And right. the, lead, the, the MLSPA should view this as at least we didn't lose as much as we thought we could have. That's how this should be viewed, because this was not a great deal overall for the players. And just speaking on that salary thing, you know, it is great that there's not going to be salary decreases, but I'm just looking at the numbers that were negotiated in the January Mm -hmm. 2020 CBA agreement versus the salary budget that was renegotiated and just passed. And the levels that, uh, so the salary budget is going to stay relatively similar, it looks like, but the levels that it was supposed to be at in 2023, which is uh, $5,950,000 uh, and an available, an available spending on roster for each team at about $11 million. That's not going to be reached anymore by 2025. So it puts this out a lot more. And we also see that there isn't going to be a salary increase between 2021 and 2022. Uh, The salary budget isn't going to increase at all. And it's not increasing at all from 2020. So we're looking at a few years of just stagnant wages for these players. And in the agreement before, you know, this was going up significantly each year. It from 2020 to 2021, it was supposed to go from 4.9 million to 5.21 million. And now we don't see any growth like that at all until 2023, where it would have where it will rise to that 5.21 million. So it it's just so clear that this has not been great on the salary side for the players even though at the very least they're able to maintain the specific level they're at. It's still not great overall considering what they had yes i i completely agree and just to go off of your point uh right off the bat uh i have a tweet here from paul kennedy on twitter and he compared like you were saying the old cba from last february to this february's cba the spending level for the both of these including the actual salary cap plus the allocation money that each team gets 2021 and 2022 it's more or less comparable but then you see it really uh kind of diverge by 2024 the current cba the one that we're uh, using right now the total amount of spending and this is not including designated players is 10.5 million compared to the old cba's 11.6 million so there's already an a million dollar deficit between those two now, where it really gets, you know, kind of big is through 2026, it goes, the current CBA is 11.8, the old CBA, 13.8. Uh, 
and then it kind of levels off back in 2027. 13 million for the old CBA, or sorry, 13 million for this current CBA, and 14.8 million for the old CBA. And so, you know, that's still almost a $2 million difference between spending. And so what we what we have found out during all of this, and the reason why the owners have, I agree, have definitely won, is because the Players Association was doing damage control, right? They were losing no matter what because the, the owners just have that much power due to the financial imbalance between, between them. They just can control how much they lost by. And they wanted to think about the future. They wanted to think about that $2 million difference in salary. But they just, they just couldn't. They just couldn't. You know, They wanted to push for a, a, a one-year extension instead of two because they wanted to get in on those increases. They wanted to get in uh, negotiating in 2026 for more money. They wanted those salary increases from the past CBA. But they just couldn't. Because with so many players making $70,000 to $100,000 a year, they can't miss out on two to four months of salary if they went on a strike, if there was a lockout. The, like These players need the, these money now. It's not like the NBA where they're making millions of dollars and if they don't get paid for a little bit, they'll be able to survive. And you know, obviously that's really, really hard. It put the players in a really hard place and it allowed the owners to pretty much do whatever they want. I mean, the players did get some good, some good things out of the CBA, free agency, keeping their salaries, which is really important for those lower income players. But, you know, at the same time, the things that they could have gotten out of a 2026, 2025 renegotiation of the CBA eclipses, completely eclipses any of the small victories that they had in this CBA. And so, Jack, I think the big question here, because you know a, a ton of people are talking about who won, what's in this CBA. The big question that you know we at the final third like to answer is what does this mean in the long run? Like what's the big idea here? Jack, how do you think that this CBA is gonna affect the league, affect the league, affect the players? What do you think? Well, there's a few things that I can say about that, because first of all, I think this sort of send, sets a bad precedent, you know, with this force majeure stuff, because right. the league, by continuing to implement this in and saying, oh, we, we won't be able to use it for a year, but we can use it after that, just leaves it open. So if they feel like they're not making enough money, for whatever reason, they could cite any minor inconvenience, it feels like at this point, and just invoke that and say, you have to renegotiate now. Give us more of your stuff. And it just sets a really bad precedent overall. And then I, the other really big thing uh, that I want to bring into this is um, Colorado Rapids goalkeeper Clint Irwin. He's an MLSPA executive board member, and mm -hmm. he was talking... Uh, there's this really great ESPN article by Jeff Carlisle uh, about all of this and what it means. And Clint Irwin was talking about the relationship between players and ownership and how it's terrible and that the relationship right now uh, is pretty much entirely transactional. It's, right. it's not 
a healthy relationship like it is in so many other sports leagues. And it's not ideal. And because of this, it sets this sort of hostile environment. I mean, maybe not necessarily hostile, but very icy relationship between those two entities. And when you have that, you're going to miss out on a lot of other opportunities to conduct deals, and it's going to be viewed purely as a financial basis and not as, I guess, humanity, a humanity basis on what yeah, it means like, like, for the players as people. It it Right now, what it's like is what it means for the players as assets of Major League mm-hmm. Soccer. Like, in, instead of future negotiations being about doing what's best for both parties, it's going to be a lot more, well, you screwed us over last time, so we're not going to do that. Like, we have to get what we deserve because you just view us as numbers. Do you think that this bad relationship is going to affect player recruitment in the future? I think Mm -hmm. that it could hamper some growth in MLS, but maybe not as much as, like, the wage caps and other things like that. But it is something still could do could have an impact well when i think about investment and you know players like messi coming over what i really think about is not so much uh about them because when i think about big players they're part of the designated player program so they're gonna get exempted from the salary cap like if teams want them they'll play a lot what i'm really worried about is the the lower income and the middle income players so and this is all relative obviously and these guys aren't necessarily lower income uh but the guys who are on the minimum salaries the guys who are you know tam level gam level signings because you know now players are less likely to come to mls due to bad labor practices i mean if you're gonna tell an eighty thousand dollar a year player that hey you know come play for mls you'll make you know 80k living in new york city (laughs) in the bay area and uh guess what the league can just snap and then suddenly you might just be out of a job for two months because of they invoked force majeure again like that's gonna be a really a tough sell to an already volatile career right even if that doesn't necessarily affect it too much it's going to play into players' calculus whether or not they they come to MLS and deal with the the labor practices or if they just, you know, go overseas or, you know, do something else with their lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a huge deal because MLS for so long has been a lot about youth players coming through. And especially with the MLS Super Draft, which we talked about in a previous episode, and... You know, there's been a lot of younger players coming through that are usually at that minimum end of the salary cap. Right. And, you know, if they have if they're getting like a degree and they got drafted in the super draft, what what's really the opportunity cost at that point of giving up like a potentially really valuable job with that degree versus yeah, yeah. going into soccer. So like it's it's a it could lead to a lot of younger talents who could be like, you know, future USMNT starters or like, you know, really big stars in the league in the future going out to pursue potentially more profitable careers. And that's a big risk because if MLS 
is going to start marketing itself as, you know, after all these transfers, like Brian Reynolds and Weston McKinney and uh, to these big name teams and Alfonso Davies as well. How can I forget? Uh, like if they're going to market themselves as this is where you're going to find the next big thing that kind of rings hollow. If you're going to be paying them at such a low level that it might be more profitable for them to go elsewhere. Yeah. And, and, and stuff like that has happened before. I think, I'm forgetting who the player was, but they played in MLS for a couple of years and now are like a data scientist or something like that. And and so that that does happen. And so trying to convince players to come over to a volatile league such as this, such as how it might be in the future, you know, can be pretty hard. I mean, you know, like like Clint Irwin said, the relationship isn't great. And so for all those players who are lower mid income, they're going to be thinking about their options, thinking about, well, what if this happens again? I, I can't we can't afford this to happen again. Like we can't afford to get screwed over just because we're playing in a in a single ownership league. And something else that I, I want to I want to mention, because this is really, really important, is with this cap increasing at a slower rate, less money means that teams won't be able to compete against, you know, league MX teams against other international leagues in the short term due to limited spending. I mean, if MLS wants to improve, they're going to have to ramp up the amount that they're spending, the amount that they're they're spending on players wages, on players transfers, you know, get the get the good players. We're t- Don Garber, the commissioner, keeps on talking about how they want to compete with league mx well how are you going to do that if you're literally limiting the amount that we're going to be spending by 2027 by two million dollars and that's just completely the opposite of what we should be doing we should be increasing spending because let's face it the owners like i said before can definitely definitely afford it and so this hurts mls in the long run it hurts it in the short run because we won't be able to compete it hurts let's be let's also be honest it hurts the u.s men's national team mm-hmm. for sure because when we don't have the league of high quality all the americans that are developing here aren't gonna go against high quality opponents if we spent a lot of money we can get a lot of really good you know south american european players and the u.s youth players who are playing in mls will be able to kind of through osmosis or whatever gain some <laughs> of knowledge because they're playing against high quality opponents playing with high quality teammates so in the whole with every single case other than the owners themselves everyone loses in this situation in the long run in the short run and to me it comes down to two scenarios right you know we're talking a lot about players and the owners not having a great relationship to me it comes down to two scenarios one mls owners when the next cba comes around and when the next labor dispute comes up they continue to just own the players like they just continue to to screw them over because they have that power and then mls just continues to grow stronger from the owner's uh, point of view but grow weaker from the player's power point of view. And it just keeps on going and 
it gets harder and harder to escape this monopoly that MLS is creating. Or players revolt and they strike because the relationship is just that bad. And in which case, that's also bad for the league because we don't want to have you know, a wasted season where the players strike and there's no games being played. And let's be honest, that's also going to hurt the relationship. And so either which way, whether it's revolution or more of the same, it's it's just going to suck because of how this all started this year, how, how it all went down, the precedent that they set. It's going to be tough for literally every party other than the wealthy billionaire owners. I, I, I just don't know where this is going to go, but I can tell that the MLS Players Association will be looking back on the June CBA when, they, when they're like, yeah, owners, you can put in the force majeure clause. And they're going to be looking at that moment like that was the single dumbest moment of our entire players union right and then i i mean the the other thing is i mean this this brings up a lot of questions about franchising i think personally in mls but that's something we can discuss in a later episode what what i want what i want to say though is aj in just like in a few sentences what would you say is the most important or influential part of the cba and why ah Man, well, to me, you can look at increasing the salary because that's really important to compete with other leagues. But to me, the biggest part of the CBA, the most influential part of the CBA is the expiration date, 2027. The players are losing out on so much money because it's expiring after the World Cup. It's going to, in my opinion, hurt the league in the long run because they're going to be limiting their spending uh, after the World Cup. That expiration date is very, very disheartening for me, and I'm sure the Players Association as well. And I think we're going to be feeling these repercussions when we come back to this in a couple of years. We're going to be feeling it then as well. That's my answer. All right. I I would say I would disagree a little because I think okay. I think that that is an important part, but I ultimately think that the most important part is probably the force majeure clause because of the precedent it is set. Oh yeah. And including it just means that whenever a minor financial inconvenience comes around, like let's say just revenues completely drop because, you know, for some reason people don't want to be in the stadiums could happen for whatever reason who knows maybe there's another pandemic hopefully not but that'd be fun but like it could happen and if any of those minor inconveniences come around the owners could say ah we got you it was hard for us we lost a few pennies you've got to make it up now and i i just think it's a really dangerous precedent if especially like if we want to shift away from commercialization from intense commercialization and intense player control by corporations and ownership then this is just a really damaging precedent to be setting but you know what you know what jack I- I'm-, I'm tired of being i'm tired of being <laughs> negative nancy's <laughs> let's let's talk about something more exciting because yeah like the mlspa not giving up a lot of their power 
sucks. Let's talk about something more positive. Let's talk about player suspensions. How about that? Oh, great. Jack, yeah, real positive yeah. shift right here. Real yeah. positive. Let's talk about red cards. Jack, uh, yeah. tell us about what's going on with red cards. Why people should care about what's going on in the Premier League right now. Well, as everyone knows, uh, the red cards uh, and how they've been distributed has just been such a positive part of this Premier League season, you know? It's just been great, obviously. And obviously, I'm kidding here. It's mm -hmm. not been great. Uh, specifically, what brings up this topic for us about red cards happens in the game between uh, Wolves and Arsenal, where Arsenal were away at the Molyneux, and David Luiz was once again at the center of a red card controversy. Controversy. Yes. He supposedly fouled, I think it was William Jose, in the box and gave Wolves a penalty right on the cusp of halftime. And there's been a lot of debate over red cards after that because, you know, David Luiz, it, it, it seems like he's been accumulating a lot of red cards recently. In fact, uh, in his entire Chelsea career, which spans, I think, eight or nine years, he accumulated one red card. And in two seasons at Arsenal, he has three. So it's a very interesting thing, but it's it's also very indicative of some of the trends we've been seeing with red cards, specifically more and more red cards, specifically straight red cards, I should clarify. We're not talking about two yellow cards, but actually mm -hmm. straight red cards. They've been going up uh, in the past 23 match weeks this season. There have been 20 straight red cards. And last season, I believe, uh, AJ, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. In 38 match weeks, there were 27 straight red cards, which means yes. that even though we're only 60% of the way through the season, we have 75% of those straight red cards that we've already that we saw last season. And it kind of brings up what exactly is a red card anymore? And why are there so many? Is it something to do with the refereeing? Is it something, uh, as I've seen some Arsenal fans claim on Twitter, is it because the the referees are inherently biased against Arsenal and want to see them fail? Yes, definitely. And I think that's actually a good thing. <laughs> and what, like, where do we draw the line at some of these? Because we also saw this past week that a lot of red cards were actually overturned as was the case with uh, AJ's favorite player, uh, Thomas Suchek, his yeah. red card getting overturned, and Yannick Vestergaard uh, from Southampton, his red card getting overturned. That was Bednarak. Or, sorry, Bednarak. right. Yeah, you were, you're right. Uh, Bednarak. Th those red cards were overturned, but some like David Luiz's bring on a lot more questions because, you know, what it looks like is that he seems to trip himself and, and slam into William Jose. And is that a red card offense? It, it's a little bit questionable at some points. And that's what we're going to discuss today. What, what exactly is a red card? So, AJ, what, what's your opinion on this? What, to you, what should qualify as a red card? Or why are there even so many? Well, last week I answered your question with a question. I'm about to do the same this week as well. Jack, you asked me what, to me, is a red card. I'm asking you, do, do you know, according to IFAB, the International uh, Board of Football Rules, I don't even know what, what the actual uh, abbreviation is, but do you know what objectively a red card 
offense is? Like, can you name like some of the the parameters for a red card offense? Well, I I'm fairly confident that dangerous play, where the intent is to harm another player, yes, is violent one of them. conduct. Violent is one. conduct, yeah. And then uh, I know also last man offense, uh, where you're like, for example, I can remember when Andreas Christensen rugby tackled Sadio Mane yep. uh, again when Chelsea played Liverpool. That's one of them. And then the only other one that I can think of right away is uh, when a goalkeeper handles the ball outside of their area. And yeah. those are the three that I that come to the top of my head. Those are two of, you know, those are pretty much the, the same thing under these rules. It's a denying an obvious goal scoring opportunity or dogzo with either a handball or a deliberate foul. So I guess. Uh, Burnt Leno handling the ball outside of his box is a little bit of both. And then uh, Christensen, that's a deliberate foul. That's a red card as well. Violent conduct uh, is obviously a red card. Serious foul play. So like serious cheating, I suppose. Also a red card. Spitting on someone or abusing someone with language. That's, you know, obviously a red card. And second yellow is also a red right. card. And I think if you notice, there's not a lot of nuance within these words. And that's that, that's what we're talking about this year and this season, today, last weekend. And let's be honest, like for the next year, until we get some better rules around red cards, this is the conversation that we're going to be having. Just looking at what happened with my own team, Thomas Suchek getting a red card, as you mentioned before, he he went up a little bit uh, with his arm and hit Alexander Mitrovic, uh, Fulham forward, kind of in the, the head. And Mitrovic went down, Suchek's like, what? And Mike Dean, the ref of the game, gave him the red card, reviewed it with a video assistant referee, I believe, and had the red card stand. And the question about this card, the question about David Luiz's card where he kind of just tumbled himself into the attacker, uh, the question with, you know, Bednarek and all these other cards that were overturned or people believe should be overturned is, well, what's, what's the line here? And David Moyes, who talked about Suchek's red card, I think put it best when he said, do we now look at every accidental incident and say that could be considered for a red card? I'm actually quite embarrassed for Mike that he would have made that decision. When are the referees going to stand up and say this is not the correct way to referee games? So, you know, we're looking at all these different incidents and we don't know necessarily where the line is between a red card and non-red card offense. So, Jack, I'm sorry for not answering your question. I still wanted to really explain that this is such a weird, nuanced topic. Why why don't you give your opinion on all of this? Yeah, so it's it it is tough because it goes back to our episode from last week a little bit when we were talking about VAR, right? Because VAR is intertwined with this idea of straight red cards. Sure. Are we going to look into, as David Moyes said, at every single incident and say that this could be considered 
bad or a red card offense. For example, like Thomas Suchek's, it looks like he he's like uh, he's like trying to like move his arm over or like even wipe sweat off of his brow. It, that honestly looks like what he was doing. Sure. And all of a sudden, like a player goes down, and it's like, oh, what happened here? And I I also think it's kind of annoying that it took about like three minutes to decide that because at that point it feels like it shouldn't be. And it the other thing is just this vagueness behind the red card rules go takes me back to um, when Tottenham were at Stamford bridge last season. And I believe it was, I want to say it was Serge Aurier who stamped on as ankle. And you could see the ankle bend in the replay. And yet somehow that wasn't a red card. It wasn't even a yellow card at that point. And it looks like really foul play. And it, it's really concerning because there's no sense of consistency between these cards. And the other, and just overall, what even is a red card? I think that there needs to be a lot more nuance provided. Like, you can't, you obviously can't overdo it because if you overdo it, then you run the risk of people getting away with fouls. Like, oh, it doesn't exactly fit what this says in here. So therefore, we can't award, uh, or not really award, but give a red card for this offense. But I think there needs to be more of a discussion about, you know, how can we provide nuance without getting too specific that it leads to incidents that should be punished going unpunished because there's a very difficult medium you have to find there because if you if you go too far in either direction then you're going to get people who are incredibly angry over it so i think that it's going to be a tough conversation to have but i think it has to come down to either something with ifab or just the fa in general because it seems to be happening in the Premier League more than in many other leagues, but yeah, that that's that's my generic take, I guess, on the red card rule. Well, l- let's hear your specific take. What what do you think the nuance should be? Where do you draw the line between obviously violent conduct and passable violent conduct? Where do you draw the line between obviously denying goal scoring opportunities or denying a a a ubiquitous goal scoring opportunity. Right. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Right. Yeah, I I can I can think of a few things from this. Like just looking at the FA's proceedings uh and their uh, appeals, the differences between David Luiz's appeal and uh um Yen ben- Bednarek's appeal. Bednarek's was successful, Luiz's was not. And it seems to come down to and I think this is actually a really good idea, looking at the attacker because, you know, in David Luiz's case, he tripped over himself, but he also reaches out and grabs William Jose as he's going down. Mm-hmm. But in uh, Bednarek's case, Martial is already falling over and Vestergaard bumps into him because he's falling over and Martial's trying to slow down to, like, you know, control the ball. I think there's a, a big difference between that. Because, you know, while you could argue that Luiz's is just like, you know, it's a reaction, a reflex reaction to trying to stop yourself from falling. But 
at the same time, the attacker isn't falling over. It still happens inside the box. The issue is how how much can you call that a red card? And I think that you know in Louise's case, it probably shouldn't have been. I I know I just defended the, the decision a little bit, yeah. but I I don't think it should have been because you know you can't. Why is it not a red card to you? Well, you he's tripping. He he trips himself. Like you you can't really he you could argue that once gravity takes over you're no longer really in control of what you're doing like once you're falling over you're, you really have no control and because of that it makes it really difficult to see that as a red card because it doesn't look like his intent is to stop him it looks like his intent is to stop himself from having an ugly contact with the ground and i think those are two very different things that okay so well yeah that that's that's one thing and then with uh you know, violent conduct, for example. Sure. I mean, Suchex is so clearly not violent conduct because you can. I, I, I've, I, I watched a few of those violent conduct red cards from the past season or two. Over. Ugh, okay. And you know, is that just is that just what you do on any given Saturday? Just look oh up yeah, I, I just love that. Yeah, you know, a bunch just of bad tackles. Red cards. Okay. Yeah, but <laughs> I, I'm I'm kidding, obviously. But uh, it it's. It's very different because you can see with Suchex, he's not looking at Mitrovic. He's not looking at him. He's looking at where the free kick is about to be taken from. He uh, he's looking at that, and that's that's what he that's what he wants to see. That's what he is looking at, and he just happens to raise his arm and it bumps Mitrovic in the head. That is not violent conduct, and it's clearly not his intent. If you look at other cases, such as like Nicola Pepe against uh, I can't remember who it was on Leeds. But he, he like smacks someone in, in the Leeds game, mm-hmm. and he's looking at them. That that that's a lot easier to see the intent. And perhaps the most clear one that I can think of comes from, uh, you know, uh, Tottenham versus United, and this is where United lost one to six after Martial got a red card, and he's looking at I believe it's Eric Lamella, and he just he just slaps him in the face. And it's like, okay, he's looking at him, he reaches out with a hand, and he does a complete motion through. Mm-hmm. I feel like it, it should be pretty clear as to what the intention is, and I think there, there's a lot more of that that needs to be taken into account. You, you know, you have to look at the player's intent. Okay, so does it all fall onto intent versus accidental contact, accidental uh, denying goal scoring opportunities is that is that all it necessarily comes down to like like you know that's what david Moyes brings up but it it's a it's interesting to think about uh whether or not you can actually tell whether someone intended it or not like right right what, happen, what happens if maybe thomas suchek just made it look like he wasn't looking at him and he actually did mean to hit him but he knew that maybe he'll be able to get away with it because he can say that, oh, no, I, I just didn't mean to. That That is a risk for sure. And, you know, you could see players game the system like that. And I guess, like, what I would say to that is that intent shouldn't necessarily be the end-all be-all of considering uh, when a red card is awarded. But I feel like it should be the first step in determining like you know is there 
is there like enough of an intent that we can see from this? Because like, you know, for example, like a, a punch to someone in the face, you can clearly see it is intended. Whereas like, you know, a shrug and it touches another player and they go down like it, it's it's very clearly not that. But then after that, you can look at it even more and say, OK, this might have been accidental, mm -hmm. but did it put this player in danger as well? Because, you know, an accident, something that looks accidental or something that is accidental, if it puts someone in like significant danger, like let's say someone is accidentally like, or is like sliding for the ball and they go in with the challenge and they hit a little bit of the ball, but they hit the player's ankle. Right. We see we see this with um, uh, in the Fulham versus Chelsea game with Anthony Robinson. And, you know, it yeah, I was just maybe it, it looks accidental, right? He he's going for the ball. He hits it a little bit. You can say, OK, maybe his in, his intent was to get the ball. But the second step then is did it put the player in danger? And in that case, you know, it was a studs up challenge on as like on on his ankle. And therefore, it could be deemed as a, a, mm -hmm. a, a threat to the player's safety. And then you can do that. The problem comes in with the fact that these rules aren't consistently applied and the fact that referees have a lot of their own discretion that they can use with this. Like when they go to check VAR uh, on the screen, they can they can there's a lot more interpretation to be had there, which is, again, brings me back to that com that more general conversation I was having about how do we provide enough nuance where, you know, there's more clear directions for referees without giving them too much power to let their own biases take hold i mean you you put it put it right on the dot we basically just restated the rules towards the end there <laughs> we're like yeah. well you know if it's reckless then and it puts them in danger that's a red card but you know intent matters that's basically what the rules are and obviously like that needs restating and there needs to be more clear measures and like what can be considered intentional what can be considered reckless but I think what you're trying to get at is the way that the refs are handling this is a little bit under par, as I think was what you're trying, right. to, trying right. to say. So how do we get to that point where refs can get the red cards correct? Because it, it's a pretty big deal just getting that wrong and just having that player out for that match and then the next three matches... How do we mm -hmm. fix that? It, it's 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 a tough topic because, like I said, you you can't give too much instruction, or else you just lead to an over policing of it. Players are going to you know search for a lot more fouls because they know they can get them, and they know that they can get those red cards, and they know how to do it, and they know exactly how. And then you also need to leave some nuance. So I I wonder. Would it be worth it potentially for the FA to go in and do sort of a retraining of these referees? Because it seems to be a problem that's not just isolated to one or two bad referees. Mm -hmm. It seems to be happening pretty consistently with many of them. Uh, so would it be a good idea for them to potentially do a retraining program and say, okay, it's like, you know, a one or two day thing. Here's what a red card is. Here's how we're going to define it. 
and then like what and then go through some things that like some situations from past seasons and stuff. Do you think that would help? Uh, I think so. And I think if we have any referees listening right now, they probably have a lot of opinions and we're probably way underqualified to talk about uh, very, referee, very true <laughs> re- referee retraining. But I, th- I, th- I think that'd be really interesting. And what, I, what I'd like to see more of is kind of like, you, you know how the, in the U.S. justice system, whenever they uh, the Supreme, the Supreme Court's decide on a case it kind of sets that precedent and you know other courts use that precedent to think about other cases it'd be interesting if during that retraining they would kind of do that where it's not necessarily written in stone that oh this is a red card this is not a red card because you know again that's that's falling under that uh way too severe of uh of nuance where it gets it gets way too black and white, but it'd be interesting if they say, hey, this David Luiz red card is not a red card because of this. And this red card is not a red card because of this. This red card is a red because of so and so. And so you kind of build a precedent of all these different cases are red cards or not red cards. And you you, you build this uh, repertoire with referees and they can pull on that to come up with a decision on the next one. And so it's not set in stone, but it's something that they look at as almost an unwritten rule that this type of red card is a red card because that's how it's been decided in the past. What do you think about that? I think that could be really interesting, but a few thing a few things that it makes me wonder about. Like one, does this lead to less people trying to become referees because oh yeah of course they they have to they have to memorize like you know oh uh it's it's like lawyers you know uh the red card of wolves versus arsenal 2021 <laughs> like uh what like the, they have, they have like a you know instead of a bar exam they have the var exam and uh they have that's, to that's they have one. to go through all of this and uh you know it 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 couldn't be positive right because theoretically having less referees means you get a higher quality pool of us of a smaller I number don't think that's actually true but i'm gonna, that would be I'm the hope that you. would be the hope that would be the hope but probably probably not entirely true but yeah. uh, again the other thing is then do you allow like referees to go onto the field and then you know in addition like right by the the var screen do they have a, like a giant book and it's like you know the the red card bible right there and they're like ah yes let me let me let me flip to this chapter about uh about violent conduct and then look through that because <laughs> it, it could be it, the only concern i could think of is it could lead to var checks getting longer because they're consulting you know this database obviously you could make it digital i'm probably i'm probably over exaggerating how much longer it could make it but it it could significantly change that so i I think it could be interesting, but at the same time, I wonder if it would have more negative effects than positive ones. Yeah, well, it obviously, like, referees as it is, we are, at least in the United States, and I, I bet in England, we are in a severe referee shortage. There's just not enough young people wanting to get into refereeing because of all the abuse they get, 
we right. had Mike Dean unfortunately getting a lot of death threats because of the the Suchek, uh decision this past weekend. So it's tough putting more on them is maybe a little unfair. So th- this you know plays into my solution last week. I'm gonna keep on bringing it up, <sighs> having centralized VAR be like, hey, uh, we, we checked it, us in this office in London in uh whatever that one place is Stockley in Park, yeah. Yeah. We're taking the decision out of your hands. This following the decision with uh with with past red cards, this offense that you're looking at is a red card. Go ahead and give it. Okay. And I, I, I think, you know, maybe it maybe that's too nineteen eighty four Big Brother or whatever, but <laughs> I, I kind of I, I kind of like that that transparency. Because I, I think I think we need transparency when we come up with these decisions to the fa- to the point of I saw a tweet where in the Australian uh, league, when they went to the VAR review, the TV audiences can actually hear the conversation between the head ref and the video assistant referee, the, the person in the, the VAR booth. You can hear them talk and deliberate and say, oh, we're going to say that's a penalty because of this this and this i think that's interesting they do that in the nba and they do that in the nfl i think making the refs kind of explain their decision in real time can also help us uh find nuance within the red card rules and use their decision making in the future as well i mean they have like their uh their their end of game summaries but you know yeah that can help explain to the audience what's going on in real time. More transparency, more communication. Uh, it could it could be very good. And then the other thing, the, again, on the centralized idea of like a centralized VAR, the what the thing I, I worry about with the red card thing then is it could feed into a lot of football and soccer fans conspiracy theories about like oh, ah yeah, I guess. the referees are out to get us and Stockley Park you know they're they're mm. they they want us to get relegated or whatever they're trying to keep us out of Europe like I could imagine like you know Arsenal fan TV going oh yeah could, could you I'm I'm sure you could imagine this because I can imagine I I'm sure any soccer fan who has watched Arsenal fan TV could just imagine the absolute just state of things at mm-hmm. in the in those live streams if that happened but i i think you you might you know the more i've thought about it since last week i think it has the potential to do more good than bad and i think it could be a really interesting idea especially since we've seen it successfully or pretty successfully implemented in most other leagues in the u.s yeah because because i i think the big thing and as we wind down our conversation is that you just need to have transparency in your decisions with red cards you need to have you need to have the ability to explain the nuances why this is a red card versus it isn't a red card because we can deliberate on what makes it a good enough offense to be uh, a straight red or not but at the at the end of the day it's a case-by-case basis they look at all the things we're talking about intent versus maliciousness uh uh recklessness uh versus con- the their the conservative challenges they all look at that but what matters most to audiences is that 
we understand where they're coming from. And if it's grossly wrong, then that transparency allows us to look at it and say, all right, in the future, that's not going to be a red card. That transparency matters because at the end of the day, the nuance comes from the referee's head. So I think we should be able to hear inside of them. <laughs> well, that, that would be a very good solution, but we'll, only time will tell to see if the Premier League, you know, if they even change this or maybe for some reason they'll think, ah, it's good enough. If they think that I would want to be in on that conversation to understand why they would think that, but I, I think it's clear, it's clear, like you said, there has to be some change with the red card rule. It could come in the form of a centralized body deciding them. It could come in the form mm-hmm. of, you know, a giant book or database of these red cards. It could come in the form of just like, you know, uh, just communicating and having that broadcast because we've seen it in a ton of other leagues. I believe we also saw it in MLS's back for a few games. Uh, yes. And, you know, I, I think that whatever solution uh, they come up with, unless it's putting more power towards the referees, like significantly more power towards the referees, I think it'll probably be better than the status quo. I believe so, too. And we're running a little bit long on that topic. We just really wanted to talk about red cards. I, I'm wondering how many times we said red card this episode. It's way too much. It's not even a word at this point. But Jack, before we sign off, do you have anything else to say? Yeah, as always, make sure to check out our Twitter at Final Third Show. Uh, you know, AJ has been putting out a ton of great tweets on there talking about MLS kits, as he mentioned, about the CONCACAF Champions League format changes, about the U.S. Open Cup. And, you know, I try and match his tweets, but honestly, his tweets are a lot better. Uh, so <laughs> that's not true. Get uh, get on there, follow it and, you know, talk talk to us like if uh, if if there's a topic you want to see covered, you know, you can you can tweet at us and we could potentially try and fit that sort of stuff in if there's if uh, maybe we'll run some polls in the future to say like you know which of these topics would you want to see covered but because we really want to provide news and talk about things that matter to all of you out there listening and as and in addition you know you can check out our youtube channel which is the final third uh i think the channel is just called the final third and we post some videos on there, some video clips, some audio clips, and you can give us a subscri- uh, subscription on there. But that's all I have to say about that. All right. Yep. That's our time. And in addition to all of that, don't forget to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We're at a good five stars right now. See if that changes. I guess it doesn't really matter to us, but also give us a follow on wherever you listen to us. Tell your friend about the show if they like soccer. Tell your dad. And we'll see you guys next Monday for the News and Predictions show. That's us from the final third. We'll see you guys next week.